Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm joined down the line by Sarah Gudazi, the leading writer in science and disruptive technologies. An associate editor of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, Sarah's work has appeared in Scientific American, the New York Times and National Geographic News, among others. Based in New York, she's the author of the debut novel The Almond in the Apricot and several children's titles, including Layla's Day at the Pool. Sarah, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Wow, you've had an incredible career and there's so much to talk about. But I mean, let's kick off, if we may, with the hot topic, which is AI, chat GPT. You've written about it in the bulletin. I mean, can journalism resist a chat bot fueled race to the bottom? I think as an industry, yes. Though there will likely be some casualties along the way. Outlets that deliver quality work recognize that the output from these chatbots don't come close to what humans can produce. But I think some of the outlets that are struggling or trying to save money might try the chatbot route for a while, and then we'll have to backtrack. Because these chatbots predict words and stitch them together by analyzing patterns. They don't actually understand the meaning of things, and they're not capable of producing anything original. They're not capable of analyzing, and they're not capable of fact-checking. And they contain errors. They're prone to something which I think has been talked about quite a bit called hallucination, which is when they generate plausible sounding answers that are actually incorrect. So I actually have a personal example. My spouse and I were building a deck recently, and we were trying to come up with a board pattern that produces the least amount of waste. We'd researched it and made sketches, but still hadn't found the best pattern. So one night, I tried to ask ChatGPT to come up with a layout for me, and it gave me a convincing set of instructions on how to calculate and cut my boards. The instructions it gave me were very similar to some of the texts on the websites I'd already visited, but the numbers didn't actually add up to my deck size. So I pointed this out to the chatbot, and it apologized, and it tried several more times, but the numbers were still not adding up. If I hadn't paid attention or hadn't conducted preliminary calculations, maybe I would have taken the answers and started cutting my wood because it sounded really impressive. But I happened to know it contained errors. So luckily, I didn't rely on on its answer. But you're astute enough to know that, aren't you? I mean, uh, someone else similarly that didn't have your attention to detail, frankly, might have been duped. Exactly, because it sounded really, really good. So I think what's going to happen is journalism outlets using these chatbots could be spreading incorrect facts if there isn't rigorous fact-checking of the text the chatbots produce, which I imagine if an outlet is using these tools, they likely won't or be able to invest in fact-checking. Another point which one of my sources for the article, Dr. Joan Donovan, who's a researcher at Harvard University, mentioned is that we read certain journalists because we like their word choices, the rhythm in their writing, their voice, their writing voice. When I was in journalism school, we had to read the New York Times cover to cover every day. And I used to commute from New Jersey to New York City to go to school and distinctly remember being on a bus and for the first time reading a piece by Dennis Overby, 
who writes about cosmology and physics. I was just mesmerized. I hadn't read anything in article form written on the subject that moved me so much. I, I had a poetry mentor who once told me that a poem should take the reader from one place to another. And I think every good piece of writing should do that, be it a short story, a poem, an article. So the reader ends up experiencing some sort of shift in perspective. And I think only humans can do that. No chatbot is going to replace Dennis Overby. In fact, no human will, um, because his style is so distinct. And that's kind of the beauty of it all, the different voices of each writer and the places only that writer can take readers to. It seems to be a way to cut costs, though, doesn't it? Because like, I I can see already that, for example, shares and and the stock market and sports reporting seems to be easily AI-able, whereas, as you said, the more deeper analysis, is it going to be that certain journalism or analysis will be automated, then others won't, and the readers will be sophisticated enough to differentiate, or or do you think ultimately it's never going to do the job? You know, I think... They can be used for analyzing, like you mentioned, stats for sports or maybe the stock market. But even for that type of work, we're just going to have to see how it all pans out for those who try it. Uh, We saw what happened with CNET, which published some 70 or so explainer articles um, starting last fall that were generated with AI tools. More than half of those contained errors. So maybe there's a way to use these tools. Maybe you send your journalists out to the field to get the reporting done and then ask the chatbot to turn those notes into a written piece or you use it for brainstorming. For example, um, the global director, global editorial director of Wired recently put out a fairly comprehensive guideline on how their magazine will use um, large language models. And they said that it might be useful for generating story ideas or headlines, but then the editors will take those and see if they're any good and refine them. So the chatbot output could be a starting point essentially. But I think outlets that exclusively use chatbots for content could possibly run into copyright and legal issues. And also because there will likely be others using them for similar purposes. Uh, if they're all using the same tool, trying to find the same data, pulling from the same sources, there might be little variation between one outlet's content and another. And then what would make readers go to one publication as opposed to the other publication? That kind of uniformity, I think, would be problematic for those outlets. AI does open the way for bad actors to spread disinformation, though, does it not? Definitely. I think um, misinformation is already a a problem and it's everywhere. The issue is these chatbots, as as I mentioned earlier, are pulling from various sources, reliable and unreliable, without being able to distinguish quality. For example, Dr. Donovan mentioned that her team found that an early version of ChatGPT was pulling from 4chan which is a message board that's known for hoaxes and racist and other disturbing content. So if a chatbot pulls misinformation from such a source and then a journalism outlet prints that, it's amplifying those fallhoods to scale, bringing so many more eyeballs on something that might have only had a few readers. Printing it also lends credibility to it. So 
the question really becomes, how does an outlet distinguish between what's real and what's not? Even if their intent is not to spread falsehoods, they will unwittingly be aiding bad actors. This can cause another issue, and that is that people will start losing trust in what they read and become skeptical of everything, including actual facts. So as you can see, it becomes this large and complicated ecosystem of problems. Well, there was some good news in your article, though, because you very eloquently set out how, frankly, humans can beat AI at the moment at spotting these freakish fakes. Can they beat AI at spotting AI? Is it, It's almost like a Turing test, is it not? I think you're referring to computer vision systems like those in autonomous vehicles. There are several examples of how these systems aren't that good at identifying objects. Like, um, for example, a Tesla crashed into an overturned truck in Taiwan. And the reason is that these systems can only recognize objects they've been trained on. So if the truck was right side up, which is what it was probably trained on, the system would have recognized it. On its side, which is an unfamiliar orientation, it didn't. These systems take shortcuts and rely on small features of an object. Whereas us humans, we're sensitive to what's co called configural shapes or the organized whole of the shape. So we take bits of an object and incorporate it across the whole shape, but computer vision systems can't. So one way that researchers tested this is with visual stimuli they call Frankensteins. And what they do is they take apart a shape and put it back together wrong. So the parts of the shape look fine, but as a whole, it's disrupted. So here's an example. Um, if you take a bear and cut it in half and take the top half and rotate it 180 degrees, so the animal's nose and tail are both facing the same direction, computer vision systems think that's normal. You and I, if we look at it, we immediately get confused and we know it doesn't look right but they don't have the same sensitivity to it that we do. Um, and that's because we can process a lot of different parts of an object and have a sense of how things fit in three dimensions. Our model and understanding of the world is just so much more complete. We process things in the context of everything around it. You've also tried to answer the question, will AI destroy art as we know it? Tell us what you found. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're referring to a package we did last year at the Bulletin where we had um, experts, artists, and writers weigh in on that topic. And what I took from editing and working with these experts is, is that it won't so much destroy art as much as it will change it and maybe even change us in the process. It will change us by robbing us of some of our creativity, because now we can just put in a few prompts, press a button and get images in seconds or other works of art. It will also benefit the companies who own these machines to the detriment of the artists whose work these tools are being trained on and used to generate these images. Once again, similar to text generated by chatbots, we run into various legal and ethical issues. But one of the writers 
for the package, Katie Payton Hofstetter made a, a really good point, which I think applies not just to the arts, but also to other areas around these technologies like large language models. And that is that AI isn't choosing our future. We are. Sometimes I feel like AI is presented as an impending earthquake or tsunami or some other natural phenomenon that we have little control over. But humans are in control. And as Katie mentions in her piece, if we invest in arts funding and education and libraries, essentially if we invest in culture, we can grow the arts and ensure a brighter future. Then artists can work with these tools and not be replaced by them. You have some insights as the fact that you're covering these things. You know, what is the rate of pace? And do you think that the 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 fact that many people do feel that there's a sense of impending doom, do you feel that that's not justified? You know, my feeling is we are definitely in a hype cycle right now. And as humans, we have this preconceived idea based on fiction and things we've read. And like you mentioned, movies we've seen that things take the one route that we've been fed. And while I'm not the person to answer this question, I think it's important not to stick things into narratives that are more science fiction than reality. Could you share with our listeners what a typical week looks like? Like, how do you go about your job? Are you are you largely desk-based? Are you out and about? You cover so many interesting topics. I'd be interested if you could sort of paint a picture for our listeners about how you go about the business of, of your job. Sure. I'm mostly desk-based at the moment, although there are opportunities to go out if those stories require it. But I kind of split my time between writing and editing, so reporting and, and editing pieces, probably more editing than writing these days. Um, I try to keep up with trends, so read the news first, you know, early morning when I wake up with my coffee, go through Twitter and, you know, read newsletters that come my way, and then um, set out to work with the writers and experts that contribute to the bulletin and then do my own reporting and work on my own writing. It's it's a good balance, I think, of the kinds of things you get to do. That's what I like about being a journalist is like no day is exactly the same and you keep learning about new things. And I think that's what keeps me doing this. And you grow in the scope of your amazing writing as well. I mean, tell us about your recent novel, The Arm and the Apricot, described as an exquisite and magical debut, a story of deep mm. friendships. Sure. The Almond and the Apricot is uh, is a story of a woman and a young girl whose paths sort of cross in a strange way. Emma is a New Jersey woman. She's a sewer engineer. I like to call her that even though she's an environmental engineer working on sewer design, but this sounds kind of more fun to say sewer engineer. And she kind of always thought she had a perfect life. She has a, a good job working as an engineer, a nice and reliable boyfriend, and then she has a fun and creative best friend. But then her best friend dies in a car accident, and then she starts to have what she believes are nightmares. Every night when she goes to sleep, she inhabits the body of a young girl living in a war-struck setting. But the dreams seem very real. And they sort of continue. So they're serialized. And her waking life starts to be affected by the events of this, this other world. 
at some point, she becomes convinced that she can, she's been given a chance to save the best friend of the young girl in her dreams or whatever they are. And so she tries to rescue her essentially from the same heartache she's been going through. But ultimately, it's the, the young girl that helps Emma find her way back. And uh, as you mentioned, it's uh, about connections and friendships and the end of one friendship and the beginning of another and the strings that tie us across space and time. What was the inspiration behind that incredible story? When I set out to write the book, I wrote the first two chapters and they were completely unrelated. It was about the woman and the young girl. The first one was the young girl and the second one was about the woman. And I had no idea what the story was, what the connection was. These were just two snapshots that I had um, I'd stitched together. And then I kind of found the story through writing it over many, many years of writing. So I didn't have a set notion of the story. I didn't have an outline. I did it all exactly the way you're not supposed to do things, but not that there's one way to write a book, but it was a, it was sort of a, just in a dark forest trying to find my way into this story. What's your writing process? For the novel? Or just in general? Well, in general. And, and does writing fiction differ in some way? Do you approach it differently or do you approach it the same? I, I, either answer is very interesting, actually. My writing process when it comes to articles is I try to do my reporting as quickly as I can when I'm assigned a story because I always feel like, one, I can rely on myself and I know that I can... Once I have everything, I can meet deadlines, but it's harder to rely on other people. So I just try to get that reporting done super fast. And also the reporting helps me craft an outline, just listening to, I usually record my interviews, listening to the interviews. Um, I start to see the shape of a story. And it's always super exciting to me when I sit down and write. I get this sort of high from, from writing journalism pieces. For fiction, it's it's a marathon. It's slow and it's painful. <laughs> and I'm not sure why I do it, but I think you will hear that from a lot of people who write books. But you know that that goes in waves. I sometimes will sit down for three months and schedule you know this many hours or this many pages a day that I will produce to to come up with a draft. And then once I have a draft, I set it aside. Sometimes I give it to beta readers, which are just friends or other writers that I know who will read it and give me notes. I go back to the drawing board. Once I do another revision, I send it to my agent, then I take her notes, and then I sit with them again, and then I have to do another revision. You know, it's just revision after revision until things start to feel right. It's has fun moments, and it also has a lot of painful moments of just forcing yourself to sit in the chair and write. Where are you going to take your writing career next? You know, I, I like where I am right now. I, I love writing and editing. I also love writing books. Um, so I think I'm just going to continue doing that. And hopefully I'll just keep getting better at it. I mean, much of your published writing has been in the field of poetry and translations. Actually, I actually haven't done much translation, but I did get my start in poetry. I'm Iranian, and as nearly every Iranian will tell you, poetry is very much part of the culture. And my father was in deep, 
Uh, my siblings and I joke that we likely received our first dose of the Robayat of Omar Khayyam as early as our first vaccine. So that was my way into words. And before becoming a writer professionally from a young age, I performed. And then as an adult, I wrote poetry. I mean, you were born in Tehran, grew up in Iran, Kenya and the US. You've had an eclectic career. Do you feel that the, all of the various cultures that you've immersed yourself in has brought all of that to your writing? As you know, you you have that cross cultural awareness that so many Americans, frankly, don't have. I'm sure it, it plays an important role. I think all of our upbringings, all of our experiences, give us a unique lens through which to see the world. And I've been lucky to to have lived on three different continents. But I, you know, I'm also sure that every single person, no matter their where they live or their experience, will have a very unique way of telling a story. And I think each one of those is, is valuable. Tell us, what's it like writing for the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists? Uh, I mean, an absolutely fascinating periodical. I mean, do you interact much with your readers? I mean, t- tell us about what you do for them. You've obviously got an incredible portfolio career and fingers in many pies. Yeah, I, it, you know, it's such a privilege. I Sometimes I just I, I have to pinch myself because it's it's such a nice place to work, but it really is a is a privilege and and responsibility to write and edit pieces that can contribute to the conversations that revolve around securing a better future for our species. And just to get to work with thoughtful experts and colleagues who are dedicating so much energy to tackle some of these issues is is really wonderful. When in your career did you feel inspired that science and technology and the way that we're going to society, that that was the bit that interested you, that became your beat. Did it? Did you find it and happen upon it or did it seek you out? So I was an engineer for, that was my first career. And when I decided to go to journalism school, which was a sudden decision made in a very short period of time, it just seemed natural for me to go into science, environmental and health reporting. So I started that way because it just seemed like that would be my way into journalism. And once I got in in there, I just loved it so much. I think it's it kind of helps me marry my two interests, which is science and writing. It's just like the perfect thing for me. If you don't mind me asking, Sarah, was there a light bulb moment, uh, a kind of was there a realization? If you feel comfortable, I'd love for you to share with our readers where, where that moment of realization came that that was your calling. I wish that real life was light bulb moments. I don't know that those are like moments or stretches of time, but I was always looking while I was an engineer and then I was a researcher. I was always looking for creative things to do. You know, I used to write poetry on the margins of my professional engineering exam book. So so it was always part of what I did. And then one day, and I don't remember why, and I was set to go get a PhD in mathematical modeling. So I'd accepted the offer to go to go study that. And one day it was a, the summer before I was supposed to go there, I happened upon the science journalism program at New York University. And I saw it and I just thought, well, this is it. I want to, I want to try this. And of course it wasn't like, yeah, I applied, but then after I applied and I got in, I had a lot of doubt, like, what am I doing? Is this the right thing to do? 
But afterwards, and now when I look back, it seemed like I should have been doing this all along. But in that moment, you know, it's hard to know if what you're doing seems right. And how's it going, like, in terms of where you feel on your career journey? It sounds to me like you've had some incredible successes. Do you still wake up with that same enthusiasm for the day ahead that you did years gone by? Oh, I do. I definitely do. Especially when I'm writing a story that I care about, I get super excited about it. And I just think... I get to do this and it's incredible. Do you think that science is under threat from fake news and, and you know, the uh, previous president's idea of the so-called alternative facts? Do you think we're turning away from evidence and reason? You know, I think politics and ideology have always interfered with science and it's been under attack probably as early as the beginning of time. But over the last several years, the tools for interfering with science have become more robust. So um, with the internet and social media, the scale at which science is under attack is, is much bigger. And we've been seeing that with climate change denial, vaccine hesitancy, and the politicizing of public health. Uh, some of this is due to the rhetoric of politicians, like former President Trump, as you just mentioned. And some are systematic and organized efforts of foreign actors who, for one reason or another, want to influence other regions of the world. So I feel like we're in this moment where we need to figure out how to tackle these threats, what kind of guardrails and policies we need to stop the dissemination of false information, and how we can better inform ourselves and help readers to distinguish fact from fiction. I mean, the, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists obviously have their very famous doomsday clock, and um, it now stands at 90 seconds to midnight, which is the closest to global catastrophes ever been, largely because of Putin's invasion of Ukraine, amongst other things. I mean, tell us about the uh, doomsday clock, and do you have any inside information? Is, is it about to strike? Should we <laughs> run for the hills? <laughs> well, we'll know next January how it's going to be set again. But one of the the beauty of the symbol is that it being a clock means we can move the hand of the clock in both directions. So we can work towards setting the hands of the clock further from midnight by taking action in the areas that threaten us most, which are nuclear, climate change, biosecurity, and disruptive technologies. I'm a firm believer that each one of us can learn and talk about these issues and, and take action, no matter how small, whether it's having discussions with family, friends, and coworkers, or reaching out to representatives, we can help move us further away from catastrophe and secure a habitable, safer planet. For those that have enjoyed listening to you and want to follow your career and your writing, how do they get in touch? How do they follow your exploits and your writing? Well, I have a website, which is my first name, last name. So sarogadarzi.com. And I tend to update that periodically. <laughs> but they can also follow me on Twitter, which my, my handle is saragood, S-A-R-A-G-O-U-D. Well, Sarah, that was a hugely interesting conversation. You're a fantastic journalist and a fantastic writer. I've ordered your novel. I haven't read it yet, but I will be when it comes. I'm very much looking forward to reading it. Thank you ever so much for your time. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by Podcast Partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. 
Find out more at podcastpartners.com.